Hi, I'm Julie Lucas, Class of 1997 and Chief Advancement Officer for Darlington School. Welcome to the Darlington Podcast. Today we are joined by Sam Moss, Darlington Class of 1963 and Darlington Legacy, who currently serves as the Dean of College Guidance. Today we will be talking about life since Darlington, his career, and our Darlington Connects program. Thank you for joining us, Sam. How are you today? Very well. Happy to be here. This is exciting. So let's still start today by talking about your Darlington experience as a student. So tell us, how did you end up at Darlington and what, what year did you start? Well, what grade did you start? I started in the, in the ninth grade, freshman year, uh, sort of very casually. My dad just looked at me one day and said, how would you like to go to Darlington? And I said, oh, that would be great. And uh, in those days, Darlington was just grade six through 12. So you either started in the middle school or the upper school. And uh, I had a fantastic experience, loved it, absolutely loved it. I think it's probably one of the main reasons I ended up in teaching. Uh, I never planned to be a teacher, but I was just so happy as a student here that it seemed like a great way to, to live your life. I love it, it's a great story. Just happy to be here. Yeah. And we're happy to be here today with you. Tell us about what all you were involved in while you were here three or four years. Well, one of the things I was most involved in was the uh, Jabberwock. I was the business manager, and uh, in those days we did an awful lot of advertising and enjoyed working with that. Uh, I was a terrible athlete, uh, but had a wonderful athletic director named Mr. McNall. And instead of saying, Moss, you're a lousy athlete, you don't make the team, he said, Moss, I need your help with some things. I need some good managers. And so as a result, several of us uh, managed all the varsity sports. Uh, we, uh, we worked sort of as a team and uh, the others were injured athletes and uh, I was the non-athlete. So I ended up uh, with letters in, in track and uh, football and wrestling and basketball and had a great experience of being part of a team even though I really wasn't a, an athlete. That's great. Still, we have many opportunities to be involved, and I love, love hearing oh, about yours. And uh, in those days, we also, believe it or not, had a fencing team. Mr. Budai, the business manager, was a former colonel in the Hungarian Army and had been on the Hungarian Olympic team. And so we fenced against Baylor and Macaulay and Castle Heights and all the other military schools in the southeast. I don't know, think I knew that. That's very cool. Yeah. How yeah. long did we have that program? Uh, you know? I think probably as long as Mr. Buddha was here. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> well, good. Well, so uh, tell me about classes. So we've talked a little bit about your extracurricular activities. What about some of your favorite classes that you took? Well, I, I really enjoyed all of my classes. Uh, I felt uh, close to all my teachers. Uh, I think three or four in particular. Uh, Bert Hudnell, who was not actually my teacher, was fresh out of W&L and was kind of a big brother to everybody in my class. And uh, he still stays in touch with, with many of our classmates and, and people like Bob Berry, who graduated the year after I did, and uh, comes back to our reunions and homecoming. And uh, so while I never had him, we've remained good friends. And he and his wife and I talk on the phone every Christmas Eve. We have for over 50 years. It's just oh our goodness. little tradition. I love that. And uh, I was lucky to have had uh, Alec Whitaker uh, for my freshman English teacher, and he immediately seemed to take an interest in me. He was the yearbook sponsor, so that's sort of how I got involved in that. Then I had uh, the famous Louis Crew 
for honors English in the sophomore and junior year and capped my career with, with Doc Register, who, uh, who was kind of my personal hero as a, as a teacher. And in Doc's later years, after he read that in our centennial book, he would always sign his letters to me, your hero. <laughs> so Doc was just amazing. And uh, I don't think I had any teachers at Darlington that I wasn't fond of. Well, that was gonna be my next question, would be who your favorite teacher is, yep. but you have uh, wonderfully shared that. Well, I'm sure most people know that you live here on campus, so that would, of course, be one of my questions. Where is your favorite spot on campus? But I think I know that question. But outside of your home, <laughs> who is your favorite spot on campus? Probably uh, the, uh, the area down by the creek, uh, between the creek and the highway. That's just a beautiful spot, particularly when the azaleas are, are in bloom. Uh, the azaleas, which Mrs. Judd planted, by the way, back in the 60s, she was uh, the headmaster's wife, but she was kind of the unofficial school gardener. She, uh, she went around campus planting flowers everywhere. Uh, and that's just a beautiful little spot. It absolutely is. I didn't know that. My office is also one of my favorite spots because that's where students see me 90% of the time uh, and uh, are very good about just dropping in. That's great. Okay, Post Arlington. I think everybody, most of our alums know where you went to college, but why don't you share with us where you okay, went to Okay, I went to Sewanee, the University of the South, uh, after an ill-fated semester at the Citadel, which most people don't know. Uh, that was my, my big uh, bad college choice in life. It was my first choice, uh, and uh, once I got there, I thought, this is really not me. Uh, my friend and classmate, Jimmy Rowe, on the other hand, just took to it like a duck on water and, and loved it and ended up as the number two ranked cadet. I, meanwhile, transferred to Sewanee and thought I'd died and gone to heaven. Uh, I loved it. And, and again, that, that student experience at Sewanee coupled with the experience here in Darlington, I think is what led me to teaching, even though my plan was to go to law school. And I took the LSAT and uh, got to my senior year and suddenly in my naivete it occurred to me I needed money to law school. I thought, well, I'll teach for a couple of years and save a little money. And that's where my naivete came in. You can't save any money on a young teacher's salary. <laughs> you can hardly pay your bills. So I started my career with a princely sum of $4,600 a year, not a month. And of all the schools I applied to, that was the highest starting salary. Uh, Lovett and Westminster were like 4400 4500 So I, I thought I had a, a great, great deal going. My first job, fresh out of Sewanee, was at Episcopal High School in Jacksonville, Florida. And between graduation from Sewanee and the starting of school, uh, I was able to spend the summer term at Oxford in England. And that's where my love of, of everything English really started. Uh, I just fell in love with the place. But uh, Episcopal High was, was fascinating because I was a founding faculty member. So as a first-year teacher, I had been there as long as anyone, except the headmaster who had been there a year to hire people and build the school. And uh, the, the philosophy was, was really interesting. They wanted to hire a core of young teachers, preferably with no experience, and a core of senior department heads to train us to do it right from day one. 
rather than to try to undo bad teaching habits. Uh, and I absolutely fell in love with teaching and I thought, I'll never go to law school. Why would I want to do anything more than this? And uh, so that's how I fell into it. Okay, so after you decided law school wasn't for you and you enjoyed teaching, then what? Well, <clears throat> being on, on the, the faculty of this new school, a whole group of us young teachers were, were very quickly able to move into administrative positions as the school grew. So I was there for 15 years and taught English uh, grades 7 and 8 the first year, 9 and 10 the second year, and then eventually every grade 9 through 12, uh, including senior electives. And then I became dean of boys, then dean of students, and dean of college counseling, and finally administrative dean. So I had pretty much moved up the ladder, uh, as, as had my friends. Uh, who had all become department heads and deans, and uh, after 15 years, it uh, seemed like a, a good time to make a change. So tell me, how did you get into college counseling at Episcopal? Well, uh, that's sort of a funny story. I was the dean of students <clears throat> of a school of 650 students at that time, with two assistant deans, and my headmaster called me in and uh, said he wanted to talk to me because our uh, college, dean of college counseling had decided to leave and go to graduate school. And Ben said, I would like for you to be director of college counseling. And I said, well, Ben, I'm, I'm perfectly happy as dean of students. I don't want to give that up. And he said, oh, I didn't plan for you to give it up. I want you to do both. And I said, but I don't know anything about college counseling. And he said, that's all right. I'll send you to the NACAC conference in New York, and they'll teach you everything you need to know. And this all came about because he had been Dean of Students at St. Albans in Washington and had also been college counseling there. So he thought if he did it there, I could do it. So for a year at least, I actually had two separate offices on campus with a secretary in each office and I would spend half a day in one and half a day in the other. And eventually, I, once I got the hang of it, I was able to merge the two into one job. <laughs> so I fell into it, I never planned it. So how many years have you been in college counseling now? Since 1976, so that's how many years? You've seen a lot of things 44. change. Yeah, it's, uh, it's a far more challenging job now than it was then. Uh, it used to be fairly predictable. A good college counselor could tell a student your chances of getting in school X, Y, or Z are minimal or really good or sure thing. Uh, you could say to a kid who wants to apply to an Ivy League school, yeah, go for it. You've got a really good chance. And today, it's totally unpredictable. Uh, whether you're talking about your state university system or uh, private liberal arts colleges or the Ivy League, they all have so many more applications than they have spaces that it's just really uh, kind of like rolling the dice. Uh, most of the students who don't get in are very well qualified and most of them are as well qualified as the people admitted. Uh, and it really has more to do with the institutional agenda of the college than it does the students qualifications. So a particular college would tell its admissions officer, here are your marching orders for the year. We want more women or more boys or more international students or 
fewer kids from China or we want more athletes. We're trying to build up the girls lacrosse program. Uh, we need more pre-meds because we're graduating a large class. We're, uh, we're about to go on a capital campaign, so we need to recruit as many alumni children as we can whose parents are major donors. All of those things, which of course students have no idea about and college counselors don't know. And very few admissions people even know until the summer before what their orders are. So to predict is just impossible. The Ivy League right now on average is taking five students out of every 100. So an admit rate of four or five percent. And uh, the uh, good example years ago when students wanted to go to Boston University and we thought that might be a little bit iffy, we, we suggested they also apply to Northeastern, which was kind of a good backup to BU, both really fine schools. Last year, Northeastern had 75,000 applications. <laughs> so nothing is certain anymore, which is a challenge and it's also exciting. And so you say to students, you want to apply to School X, go ahead, they've got to take somebody, it might be you. Well, you talk about not being able to predict college guidance. Would you have been able to predict that you would have ended up back at Darlington after Episcopal? No, absolutely <laughs> not. Uh, when I decided to, to move on from Episcopal, I was actually interviewing at schools in Mobile, Savannah, Danbury, Connecticut, Los Angeles, and St. Louis. And I was in my office one day and my secretary came in and said, there's a Mr. McCauley from Darlington School on the phone for you. And I immediately knew who Mr. McCauley was. I, he had the most incredible reputation in our profession. And uh, I said, sure, I'd never met him, but uh, we certainly knew of each other. And the gist of the call is he heard I was planning to make a move and what I consider coming back to Darlington. And I said, well, you don't have any administrative vacancies listed with the placement agency. And he said, no, we're about to. And I said, well, that sounds a little sinister. And he laughed and he said, no, we have a retirement policy uh, about uh, giving up your administrative position at 65, but remaining on the faculty. And both Worth and Doc will be stepping down, Worth this year and Doc register next year. And uh, Doc is associate headmaster and director of counseling and it would be his position. And I said, well, how does Doc feel about that? And he said, oh, he's thrilled. He said he's been doing this longer than he wanted to, and he thinks it would be wonderful if you came back as his successor. Well, at that point, I was completely thrown. I, I had not even thought about this. Uh, my family had moved away from Rome after my dad died. My sister was off in college, so I had no connection, no ties here. And uh, I said, well, I'm going to have to think about this. So Jim invited me to come up and spend a weekend. And uh, I stayed in the home on the hill and in their guest room in what is now your office. And uh, Nancy and Jim gave a wonderful dinner party for me uh, with uh, Doc and Juliana Register and Worth Moser and Brad Menajoya. And I thought, gosh, this is really a great welcome to Darlington. So I just fell in love with the place all over again. Uh, so that's how I got back here. Never planned it. And I thought I would stay maybe about 15 years here and then move on and do one more school and retire at about 66. And 
That never happened. I've never found a reason to leave Darlington and uh, stayed in this role a lot longer than I ever planned to. Uh, but year to year, it's just continued to be fun and a challenge, but mainly fun. We're very grateful that you didn't leave and find somewhere else to, to do that final stint because um, this podcast is about Darlington Connects and you are truly the ultimate Darlington connector with connecting students to this next phase in their life. So you take them from Darlington to college and I just thank you for that because the stories are amazing and you've just been able to help so many kids find their right school. So Sam, tell me a little bit about how you have structured the College Guidance Office here at Darlington because it's a little bit different than other schools and you have, you have had the longevity here to be able to build the program in the way that you think is best and it's really benefiting our, our students. So tell us a little bit about that. Well again, that started almost by accident in, uh, in Jacksonville uh, when I became <laughs> Dean of College Counseling uh, and had a cl senior class of about 140 uh, with virtually no help in terms of being the only college counselor. And uh, my headmaster then said, uh, well, you know, that's what I did for years. Why don't I give you a hand this first year? So he became a college advisor and took 10 or 15 kids. And then the, uh, the president said, well, I'll be glad to take a few. So I then persuaded a couple of department heads to join in over the next year or so and developed a system of multiple college advisors. And the big advantage was they were working with people they knew and wrote the recommendations rather than my doing it for the whole class. So I brought that system with me to Darlington. Uh, the first year I did it entirely by myself and, and Doc Register gratefully volunteered to write some of the recommendations because he knew the kids. And then I developed the system of multiple college advisors by asking faculty members who were interested in college counseling to do this. And I, I trained them uh, and, and developed this system. And it's interesting, several of them have gone on to become full-time college counselors at other schools. Casey Zimmer, uh, for example, uh, at the, uh, the Stanford School in Delaware. Uh, Ivy Harrison became a college counselor. John Thorson, who's now head of school. John Marshall, head of school. Brad Joyer was a college advisor here and became a head of school. So I think those who've moved on as heads of school have found it uh, useful to have had that experience and understand that aspect of schooling. Uh, it, it, in many cases, has rounded out their knowledge. Uh, I know one of my friends said when, when uh, John Thorson came to interview at Athens Academy as head, he told her, he said, I need for you to relax. I know what you do. Uh, you know, Sam Moss trained me as a college counselor at Darlington, so I get it. I know your job and just want you to feel comfortable knowing that. Uh, so it's been fun to see how they've moved into those areas. But here at Darlington, the big advantage is that instead of Ivy Brewer and Sam Moss trying to write 120, 130 recommendations, uh, and, and doing what most of our colleagues do, closing the door about the 1st of October and keeping it closed until Thanksgiving. Many of my colleagues take writing days and don't even go to the office. They simply stay home and write recommendations. Well, since we're not writing them all, but the college advisors are, our doors are open. So we have much more time 
to counsel all of the seniors as they need us, rather than just trying to get those letters written. And uh, it also broadens the perspective because we've got 10 college advisors with different backgrounds and they become experts. We, we send them off on college visits. We send them to the summer institutes to be trained. Uh, and very often we'll refer kids to each other. Uh, so if I have a kid who uh, is interested in schools in New Hampshire and Massachusetts, I'll say, well, why don't you go talk to Mr. Cox as well? You know, his son graduated from the University of New Hampshire and he went to UMass. So he's a good additional resource for you. So that's the way we work it. And the other big plus is we, uh, we let the students express a preference for which of us they want to work with. Most schools, even the very best, just divide alphabetically. Uh, you know, you take A through E and I'll take F through H, etc. And uh, so the kids end up working with somebody that they typically already have a, a good relationship with. So that letter is more personal than Ivy and I could write for everybody. And it also means that there are different writing styles. You know, it doesn't matter how much you try, you have your own vocabulary, your own style of writing, and if 10 or 15 kids from Darlington are applying to Georgia Tech, and the same person has written all the letters, they really do begin to sound alike. And this way, they don't. So with all the connections that you make every year with our students in colleges, you also need to stay connected within the world of colleges and with other organizations. Can you tell us a little bit about the work that you're doing outside of the school yes. each year? Yeah, and, and I think to some extent it's true that college counselors are probably better known outside of their own schools than they are within their schools. And by that I mean that my colleagues at Baylor or Macaulay or Westminster, they know more about how I do my job and I, how they do theirs than many of the people in our own institutions uh, because we do the same thing. And our, our focus is equally internal on the kids and external with the colleges. So building those relationships with the college offices and expanding Darlington's visibility uh, is a big job. A lot of what we do is sell Darlington. Uh, and we sell our kids. And so the time we spend in national organizations, uh, professional conferences is really important. Uh, it may be the most important thing we do uh, in terms of really helping our kids, but they're not aware of that. And most people in a school are not aware of that. Uh, but it's, it's marketing, it's public relations, uh, it's, uh, it's being involved in the professional organizations. Uh, luckily, I, I've been able to serve as president of uh, the Southern Association for College Admission Counseling, which has about uh, 12,000 member institutions. And I've been, served on, been able to serve on the board of directors of the National Association of, of uh, College Admission Counseling, uh, which are interesting organizations because they're made up of secondary school college counselors and the college admissions folks. It's the only profession I know that sort of brings both sides of the process together, uh, which is fascinating. So some of my closest friends work in colleges, uh, and uh, they know what I do, and I know what they do. And our reputations are very well known, good or bad. Uh, 
I've also served as chairman of the Board of Trustees of a group called the Association for College Counseling and Independent Schools. And that's a reasonably new organization that's grown rapidly and it focuses entirely on independent school college counseling. So it's very focused uh, in, in the kinds of work we do. Uh, so those are the, the three main professional organizations. I've also worked with the college board a lot and, and served on their regional council uh, and chair of their guidance and admissions assembly. Uh, but uh, the, the, the counseling professions are more important than the college board connection. So all good things come to an end. And while things aren't coming to an end this year completely, tell us a little bit about the news that was just shared with us about uh, your retirement. Well, uh, I'm still not sure I should retire. Uh, you know, I'm a very youthful 76, <laughs> which is about 10 years that, longer than most of my contemporaries work. But uh, I guess uh, there has to be a time for everything. And Frank Stegall told me when he retired, he said, you'll just know one day. And that coupled with a, a clever comment that Prince Philip made a few years ago struck me when he turned 96 uh, and decided to retire from public life he said he wanted to leave before the use-by date like on a carton of milk uh, and uh, so I thought well maybe that's that's good advice uh, I don't want to stick around so long that people get bored with me or I lose my edge and uh, happily uh, Brent offered me the wonderful opportunity to to stick around on campus for another year uh, and stay in my home and work part-time and help out Brent Bell and Julie Lucas with whatever they need for me to help with in terms of uh, special projects for him or helping with the alumni and, and, and advancement. Uh, so that's what I plan to do and after that I will stay in Rome. Uh, I, I can't imagine living anywhere else, although I always assumed I'd retire to Jacksonville, but. Uh, that, that plan changed a number of years ago. Uh, I'm involved in some things here in Rome, like the South Rome Redevelopment Corporation that uh, will, will keep me busy and the Rome Symphony uh, board. So I don't think I'll be too bored, but I will miss kids. That's what I will miss most, the excitement and energy of working with teenagers. Well, the wonderful thing is these teenagers turn into amazing alumni of the school and I can definitely see you forever serving in a connecting role, so through the Starlington Connects program. So let me ask you before we, we end today, uh, your career was not what you thought it would be when you left this campus in 1963 and it went through different stages. So what advice do you have for really anyone in our community who's looking to change careers or who's looking to um, just find a new job or find a new company or go out on their own, what advice do you have to share with them about your experience and how it can apply to theirs? Well, first, I would say have a plan. And secondly, be willing to change that plan. Uh, follow your passion. Uh, if you get to the point where you're, you're bored with the job or you don't feel challenged or you're unhappy, don't be afraid to make a change. Uh, it's, it's what I tell the students when they go to college. It's not permanent. If you don't like it, change it. Uh, transfer. Uh, a number of people do that. And uh, the same thing is true with careers and jobs. 
I've known a number of people who've had wonderful second careers. One of our math teachers, Al Shorey, had a very successful military career and retired as a lieutenant colonel, and he's one of the best teachers at Darlington, his whole second career. Uh, and, you know, people should, should go, with, go with their passion, uh, go with what they love. And if, if you love what you do, then you don't go to work every day, you just have fun. One of my friends said to me years ago, when you work in a boarding school, don't you feel like you're at work all the time? And I said, no, I feel as if I'm at home all the time. And I think that's one of the keys, particularly to, to, to being happy in your career and your job. If you're happy, you're going to do a better job and you're going to be more successful at it. Well, I don't think there's anything better than we, that we could end on other than that. That was perfect. And we are grateful to you for everything that you've done here at Darlington and continue to do and excited about um, what's next and all the great connections you'll continue to make. Well, thank you, Julie. It has been a real trip. I've loved it. We're glad that you tuned in to this episode of the Darlington Podcast. Tune in each week wherever you like to listen to podcasts, and don't forget to subscribe. You can check out today's show notes at www.darlingtonschool.org podcast. If you have questions about today's program or ideas for a future episode, send an email to communications at darlingtonschool.org.